Let's continue to worship with the reading from Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome to church, everybody. Uh, hey, y'all. Um, sorry, but something was, the audio was off from this. Sorry, I don't know. Oh, and we're playing it again. Here we go. Let's go for two, shall we? <laughs> Good morning. Uh, I'm Chris. I'm the pastor here at Riverstone. I'm glad you're with us today. Um, that video will make more sense the further we get into this sermon. I'm not directly going to address it, but you'll see how it overlaps in a second. Um, I've spent various amounts of time in various streams of the church, uh, streams, denominations, groups of uh, the church. I grew up charismatic. I led worship at Baptist churches and Methodist churches, and then I worked at an Anglican church. And each flavor of the church brings beautiful things and offers beautiful things to the wider church. Each a stream, each denomination has beautiful advantages, and it also has blind spots. Ours as well. This is a charismatic church. Uh, we think uh, that there is no biblical evidence to suggest that God is no longer doing today what he did in the New Testament. We believe that God can break through at any moment, break through the physical universe to heal the whole person, spiritual, emotional, relational, yes, even physically healed. We've had people at this church physically, miraculously healed in our midst. And if you have an issue with that or a conversation, I'll introduce you to her. Come talk to me. That being said, and you can tell her she's a liar to your face. That being said, <laughs> offers on the table. I believe there are treasures in other traditions than ours that I have greatly benefited from as a Christian, one being the historical liturgical church calendar in which the church observes seasons that echo the narrative of the gospel. Everyone got that? 
echo the narrative of the gospel. Very important you understand that, right? This church calendar goes back centuries and has called the church to routinely reflect on different aspects of the gospel story throughout the year. It's to keep us biblically rooted. So Advent's one of them. You guys know that one? It's celebrating the free gift of Jesus. Pentecost, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Epiphany, having your eyes open to who Jesus is. Um, And they even have a season, and I love this, called Ordinary Time. Because that's the season of doing life with Jesus. Just ordinary, just getting up, doing the dishes, going to work. Dude, it's a reality of life sometimes. And today I want to invite you into one of the seasons of the church called Lent. We're not talking about the stuff that comes out of your dryer. This word, its roots, literally uh, comes from the word lengthen. And it's referring to the fact that the days right now are lengthening. If you noticed, spring is coming, y'all. The days are getting longer. The sun is getting warmer. Vegetation starting to wake up. Landscape, y'all, the landscape around you is about to be transformed. Stop and notice. Look around. It's about to be radically transformed. So while the nature around us is about to blossom and grow, Christians throughout the ages have said, let's stop and meditate. Okay, we're, gonna, we're gonna about to see a visual of winter to spring from death to life, you know, death to new growth. We're about to see that. Okay, what makes your soul do that? What helps us? What makes the human soul blossom and grow? What brings new life to you? You're about to see it around you. What brings time of refreshing, times of refreshing in your heart? What, here's a question, what causes things to turn from winter to spring inside the human heart? There's so much good stuff here. Y'all, number one, again, it echoes the rhythm of the gospel, keeps us centered in gospel truth. Number two, it recognizes the reality. This is the reason I love the church calendar. It recognizes the reality that there are seasons in life. There are seasons in life. Some of you need to hear this, and this is all you need to hear today. There are seasons in life. Got me? This is what I mean by that. If you decide to be a Christian for any amount of time, you guys with me? If you decide to follow Jesus for any amount of time, there will be seasons in which your prayers will dribble off your chin and fall on the ground. There will be seasons where the word of God seems dead to you. You open it and you read it and you open it and you read it and nothing is happening. There will be seasons where you come into this church and everyone's singing praise and you're just like, I don't get it. Can we say, can we talk like this in church? I'm sorry. I should have asked for permission first, right? This is okay. There will look at me. If you're going to be a Christian for any amount of time, there will be seasons in which you look around the universe and God has seemed to have vanished. He's not there anymore. What once was green is now dead. Look at me. Breathe. It's okay. It's a, your pastor's giving you permission to go through winter seasons, to not always have to say, I'm fine, you're fine, everyone's fine. Praise his name. There are seasons to life, y'all. Breathe. You can come in this room and say, everything looks dead to me. And we say, yes, sir, I know. I know the one. Prayer doesn't make sense to me. The word seems dead to me. Worship is dead to me. And you are welcome in this place, y'all. There are seasons to life. And there are certain seasons that we would rather just not acknowledge. Can we write? Wouldn't we, don't we want to be the tree planted by the river that's always blooming in and out of season like Psalm 1 talks about? Yes, I love that ideal. But I'm just telling you, as a dude who's been following Jesus as long as I have, I've gone through seasons in which all the leaves on my tree have just fallen off. No fruit. No fruit. 
Some of us are in that season right now. You're in a wilderness, you're in a desert, you're in a winter, and nothing is growing around you. And you're here today thinking this is the last time you're gonna come to church. You're here today thinking, you know what? I don't even know if I'm a Christian anymore. Everything looks dead. God has disappeared from the, where did you go, God? And you know what your ally and comfort is in this season? A little book called the book of Psalms. You ever read that book? Where David, all the writers just get after, where are you, God? See, we've, we've just domesticated church where we all come together, we're all plastic and everything's fine all the time. And we've neglected these parts of scripture that gets into this visceral need that all of us have to feel alive. And when we don't feel alive, we feel like, well, I can't go to church. God, read the Psalms over and over and over again. Why have you forsaken me? Jeremiah accuses God of lying to him. You deceived me. Guys, guys, if we can't come together as Christians and be honest about these seasons, we're just going to be a bunch of hypocrites. We're not, we're, I, dude, one of the things that I have just like putting my flag on the ground at this church is that we come into a room like this and we have room for people to get on their face before God and repent and weep and wail about the stuff going on in their life. And we also have room for people to jump up and shout and praise and follow the Holy Spirit. You know what I'm talking about? Do you have room for people in your small group to do that? Do you have room for your friends? Is there room in your theology for your friends to go through a season of winter and suffering before you jump down their throat and say, you're not a Christian anymore? You guys track? Are we tracking? No? I don't know. I'll get back to my notes. Okay. If you don't understand that there will be seasons of death and despair and heartbreak and seasons of pruning, you're going to freak out and you're going to have an existential crisis when it comes. And you look around, and listen, I can tell you friend after friend after friend after friend who has bailed on God as soon as they hit a season like this, as soon as their marriage didn't go the way they thought it was going to go, as soon as they got fired, or as soon as someone they loved died. Or you can say it this way, when a season of winter, suffering, wilderness hit them, which we've all been there, they, they just, they can't, in the Bible, wilderness is always associated with test. The children of Israel go through the wilderness. Jesus in the wilderness. This is always associated with being tested, right? Um, and I could sit here and tell you about friend after friend after friend who could not reconcile the wilderness season with the goodness of God, and they bailed. They couldn't, look at me, they couldn't go through the test. When they hit the test, they said, well, I guess God's not good anymore because I thought God was supposed to make everything awesome all the time. Y'all, you routinely need to be reminded that there are seasons. And Lent specifically reminds us that there's a season of death. There's, a season, there's winter, y'all. It's a season. It's a natural season and it's a spiritual season. Some, it's called the dark night of the soul, the church fathers called it, where you go through life and everything spiritually just seems dead around you, right? In a word, Lent reminds us specifically of the suffering of sin, the suffering that sin has caused in the world. And Lent calls us to sit with the implications of sin, which we talked about a couple weeks ago when we talked about everyone's broken, the kind of world that sin has created. And it prompts this question, what must humanity do to go from wilderness to the garden of God? What must we do? What has to happen in your heart to go from languishing, scarcity, want, all the things that wilderness, all the things that the desert represents, y'all, you with me? Languishing, scarcity, no food, no water, want, depression, darkness, winter, darkness, right? Two, flourishing, abundance, enough to go around, joy, light, warmth. What does it take in the human soul for us to go from there to there? What is it? The answer, y'all, it is, but it's also completely opposite of what we think. 
See, we think I'm fine, you're fine, everyone's fine. Just try a little harder and it'll work out. Get a gym membership, read the Bible, and we can sort this. And this is so important for us to get at the beginning of Lent. This is so important. You can't miss this on the onset. Lent comes right before Easter, doesn't it? In fact, it leads us up to Easter because we have to know something really, really clearly. The only way that humanity can get from the wilderness to the garden is by the finished work of Jesus. It's the only way. It's the only door. It's the only door. Now, you gotta walk through that door. There is something on your side. You know what it's called? It's called believe and repent. This is your work. Believe and repent. This is what Jesus said it was, right? The only way, though, that humanity can flourish is uh, if Jesus himself comes to us. The Bible's going to maintain the root of all your problems is not your cholesterol or your bad childhood or your bad eating habits. Rather, the root of all your problems is estrangement from God. And the only way relationships can be healed is if someone initiates. You ever been in a situation with your marriage? Someone's got to initiate, and God did, right? Uh, and the, Jesus is called, y'all, the second Adam, leading us back to the garden. Got it? Back to the presence of God, if we will trust and follow him. Um, Just like the test of the Hebrews was, if you remember, walking through the wilderness, and the test was, will they trust and follow God in the Egyptian wilderness? So so too our test, y'all, is will you trust and follow God in the wilderness of this world that's been rocked by sin? So hang with me. I got to frame this for us. And this is really all I'm doing today, just framing the season of Lent, or we're going to lose the plot. The Bible is full of all these amazing, breathtaking declarations of our standing before God because what Jesus has done. Hey, you hear that? Like amazing declarations of where we stand before God because what Jesus has done. So it'll say things like this. You're fully forgiven. You guys read that one? You're heirs with Christ. You're seated in the heavenlies. With, you're washed, clean, purified. You guys read this stuff? Perfect in his sight. You read this stuff, it's confounding, right? On the one hand, it seems to be like everything's done. It's finished. He's died. Cosmically finished. Jesus said, it is finished. He's won. It's why we were singing the way we were singing a second ago. But on the other hand, people are still starving in this earth, aren't they? On the other hand, we're still in the shadow of sin, the shadow of the valley of the valley of the shadow. There it is. Valley of the shadow of death. We're still there. People are still dying. You yelled at your wife this week. You lied about that thing at work. How do you reconcile that? I thought you were perfectly forgiven and freed. I thought chains of sin have been broken. I thought all that stuff's been finished. How do you sort the fact that you're a jerk still? <laughs> how, or... How do you sort the fact that your car got broken into this week and your stuff was stolen? It is finished. His kingdom's at hand, yes, but not fully, y'all. You can enter eternal life right now, yes, but does that mean all is well in the world? Y'all, we still got to deal with the world as it is, which is fallen. Theologians call this, this is why I watched the video, theologians call this the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. That he's bringing the garden back and soon one day the garden, the kingdom, uh, the city garden in Revelations will fully overlap with this world, fully be healed. It's already here. Yes, Jesus brought it, but not fully. Already done, but not yet. He's done the work. He will come back to finish it. But in the meantime, what's your part in being a person who goes from the uh, wilderness to the garden? What's your part, y'all? Like if it's done, if it's all finished, many Christians, stay with me, 
have taken that to mean there's nothing at all that I have to do. I'm forgiven, I'm empowered, I'm sanctified, take a nap until I die and I'll go to heaven. Many Christians have taken this the idea of saved by grace through faith as this. Well, there's nothing for me to do. It's all done. So this leaves a couple of really big problems for us. Let's chat. How do you live sanctified, forgiven, and empowered in a world that is saturated with sin? If you've been invited into the garden, if you're, okay, just think about it again. Wilderness garden, what's the garden represent? Abundance, food, flourishing, enough to go around. It's a garden. Food's growing out of the ground. There's enough for everybody, right? Have you ever planted a tomato plant? It's amazing the amount of tomatoes you get from one small little seed, all right? The garden is abundance. What's the wilderness represent? Scarcity, want, dehydration, malnourished, all these things. Okay, so you're a person of the garden. You're a person of the garden. God has given you abundance in the name of Jesus, life overflowing. Okay, but we still live in the wilderness. So what's that mean? If you have abundance and you're walking around where people are dying, what do you do? This is where Christianity has splintered in a thousand different directions. Some people say, you know what? We got we to gotta protect the garden. We're going to go to the mountains. We're going to retreat from the wilderness. You guys chatting with me? Other people have said, we can't let people starve. They're, they're dying out here and their lives have gone out into the wilderness. God, this is the, this is the picture we got. Did you see it? When Jesus going out and all these little pockets are, are going in this and that's why I watched the video. It all makes sense, you see? So that's your first big problem about this whole dynamic. Are you going to be a person of the garden? Well, you got to figure out what that means if you're living in the wilderness. There are implications and responsibilities ethically laid on someone who has abundance in the midst of scarcity. We chatting? Okay, you got you to deal with that. Number two, the second big problem is not the darkness without. It's the darkness within. See, you can take the person out of Egypt, but how do you take the Egypt out of the person? The second big problem with this whole dynamic, which in my opinion is way, way harder, is if you're sanctified, if you're perfect, fully forgiven, how does this square with the fact that you sinned this week? Like you lost it in anger or lust or whatever it was. Like how does that square? The second problem with this whole dynamic is the darkness, the slavery, the Egypt, the wilderness that's lingering in your hearts. That even though God can come and say, have abundance, have food, have nourishment, there's something in us that clings to the darkness. Maybe it's just me. There's something in me that clings to the slavery of Egypt and says stuff like the, Egypt, like the Israelites said. It's like, man, it was better back there where I knew that I was going to have food. You call me out in the wilderness where I'm not sure where my food's going to come from. There's something in us, right? Uh, you can take the people out of Egypt, but how do you take the Egypt out of people? Jesus, y'all, can take a person out of sin, but how do you take the sin out of a person? It's in there, especially when that person is clinging to the things that Jesus has redeemed us from. Do you think God's going to pry open your fingers? I think that's what most of us are hoping. I think most of us are thinking God's going to come and lightning strike from heaven and just go against our will and pry open our fingers of the things that we're hanging on to. I just have no biblical evidence that that's how it goes. Find me a place in scripture where God overrides someone's will. And let's chat. No, God will not. I mean, think about it. Can you think of a place? Don't call it out. We're not. Okay. But <laughs> that, let's, Ben was about to call it, but let's. Let's get coffee and let's talk about it. Will God, does God routinely override our will? 
Will he make you do something that you don't want to do? The reason I love Lent is it calls us to reflect on our part in getting back to the garden. And like any relationship, y'all, it takes two to tango. Christ has done his work, yes and amen. The Spirit's here to comfort and counsel and empower. And trust me, he has done 99% of the heavy lifting, but you still have things to do. And it's primarily called repentance. See, many Christians get in the Christian life thinking there's no need for repentance, no need to alter ourselves. And if that's true, why is one of the primary messages of Jesus repent and believe? Over and over and over again. This is the thing that God is telling you to do. Repent and believe. Forgiveness was God's initiative. He chose to forgive. Repentance is something you do. God will not do it for you. Find me a place in Scripture where God repents for someone. No, you're not going to find it. You ever heard the phrase, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink? This is what repentance is like for many, because many of us can't bring ourselves to say these three horrible words, I am sorry. I have sinned, the three hardest words in the English language. Now, this is what I love about Lent. It echoes the rhythm of gospel, reminds us of their seasons, but it also invites us to meditate on the implications of sin in the world and ask, how should we think, act, live as people of the garden walking through the wilderness, as exiles? Y'all, exiles is an image of what it means to be a Christian, right? We're people of life living amidst the dark, people of freedom living amidst slavery. And it's because so many Christians want to ignore sin. They want to ignore sin without, and they want to ignore sin within, that we have the reputation of being plastic fake people. Not into that. So one of the ways the New Testament talks about this tension of living in the already not yet, being someone who fully believes what Christ has done, but who still has to wrestle with sin within and without, is this phrase, keeping with repentance. And this is, the, this is the flavor of Lent. It's super fun. You're going to love it. None of you, you're like, I'm not coming back. Come back in Easter. Um, this phrase, keeping with repentance, y'all, it's the way to life, I'll be honest with you. It means, this phrase means that repentance is not once and done. Repentance, y'all, <laughs> this is funny, is an ongoing ethic of the Christian life. When is the last time you participated in that ongoing ethic? Or are you done with, you don't sin anymore? That's awesome. Because of sin, outside and inside, outside and inside, repentance is an ongoing ethic of the Christian life. It is a continual thinking about your thinking, a continual acknowledging the fight against uh, sin inside and the implications of sin outside. Jesus, y'all, he said, blessed are the morn. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. All those things are getting out this idea of repentance being an ongoing ethic. The phrase, keeping with repentance, is what John the baptizer tells people coming to be baptized. So we're going to read it real quick and digest it. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out, this is what Gary read earlier, to be baptized, you brood of vipers. I'm going to start my sermon next week like that. Um, (laughs) Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. I'm just going to point out a few things about this. For I tell you, God is able to raise up uh, these stones, I'm sorry, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the tree, trees, plural. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds then asked him, what shall we do? Now, so focus on this. They're saying, how do we keep with repentance? Let's look at his answer. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food 
to do likewise. Is, is that how you understand repentance, church? Is that, is that what it means to repent? Because John the Baptist just drew a straight line from keeping with repentance to sharing your clothes and your food. Tax collectors also came and said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said, hey, quit cheating at work. Soldiers also came to him. What shall we do? He said, don't, same thing, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news. You know what that word is there? Good news, evangelion, whatever. It's the gospel. That's what it means to his people. So number one, does that sound like good news to you? (laughs) It is in a broken world. It is in a broken world where sin has racked humanity. It is good news, y'all. Stop it being unjust, it's good news, y'all. It's good news. The Bible says this is good news, uh, that the king is at hand. And notice that everything he is telling them to do, this whole keeping with repentance, is this way. That, it was not this way. Did you, did you catch that? We think repentance is primarily this way, and it is. There's obviously a component that's between you and God. But the fruit of those repentance is all this way. You want to keep with repentance? It's all described relationally. You want to keep with repentance? Treat others better. You want to be a person of repentance? You want to be a person of new creation? Share your food with the hungry. Stop cheating at work. Have integrity at work. Have compassion on people. Here, keeping with repentance, y'all, is bringing tubs of clothes to church and giving them away. Keeping with repentance is buying someone else lunch. John is saying this is what it looks like to be a person of the garden in the wilderness. Got it? To be a person of light does not mean you turn a blind eye to the darkness. Let me say that again. Some of you need to hear this. To be a person of the light does not mean you turn a blind eye to the darkness. It means you engage it. That's what it means. To be a person of the light means that you enter into the suffering of others. We take, y'all, Christians take Please stay with me. I know you're all bored. Christians take an active, not passive stance towards the suffering of the world. You know why? Because Jesus took an active stance, not a passive stance towards your suffering. Jesus took an active stance, not a passive stance towards the fact that your soul is wrapped in chains of sin. He engaged, and therefore to be a person of the light means that we engage with the suffering that is caused by sin in the world. Christians are not escapists. They're not. And if that's the kind of life you're living, you need to repent. See, get it? All works together. It's why Christians, y'all, listen, stay with me. It's why Christians have lived, Christians have lived radically subversive lives throughout history. Radically subversive. It's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer fought against the Nazi regime. Regime, regime, that's the word. Thank you. Third Reich. 
It's why William Wilberforce gave his life to, do, to undo the slave trade. It's, way, it's why Martin Luther King Jr. gave his life to unravel racism in America by nonviolent resistance and why we rightly celebrate and remember him this week, this month, during Black History Month. It means we don't just enjoy the warmth of spring, y'all, but we invite others into it. And not only do we invite, we go to them in their winter. That's what it means to be a person of the garden. That's what it means to be a person who's walking through the wilderness with garden life inside you. We bring the warmth of spring into the dead places of the earth. Didn't there no one else get jacked about that? Like I thought people would be like, yeah, amen, woo. No, nothing. It's too late now. Okay. The reason, the reason I like the language of garden and wilderness is because John is really addressing a mindset of scarcity versus abundance, isn't he? Do you give your clothes away if you think you have no more? Will you give your food away if you don't think any more food's coming tomorrow? No. He's addressing a mindset of scarcity in people who would say they follow Jesus. Remember, the garden represents abundance, trusting in our Father that he's going to provide for us. And that's the root of our generosity. We share because we know that God's got us. Yes, you work, but it's God that provides for you, right? So we're, being a person of the garden means that we know our Father's got us. So on the one hand, keeping with repentance is always, 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 it plays itself out in real relationships. You understand what I mean by that? In other words, it's not some ethereal, spiritual nonsense that hangs out in the unseen universe. Repentance always plays, it embodies itself inside of you. Our faith is an embodied faith. It plays itself out in our physical body. Right? You guys tracking with me? Okay, sorry. I'm super stoked today. I, get, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm like, wait, they're like, everyone, you're like, come, come back down. Always place itself out relationally. So we follow Jesus and he did that. And so we do that, right? Dealing with the consequences of sin, reversing it, healing the wounds that sin has caused, forgiving people and calling them into forgiveness, right? So we can think about it this way, bringing the kingdom into enemy territory. That's what you're called to. That's what you're called to, to confront the consequences of sin out there. But what about the sin in here? What about the sin in here? Like we talked about a few weeks ago, right? Let's go back to something we said earlier. You can take, out, you can take the people out of Egypt, but how do you take Egypt out of the people? Okay, so what are the structures? And here we're turning the corner to what Lent is. What are the structures and practices in the New Testament that calls us to deal squarely with the darkness within? What are the practices, the habits within the New Testament that cause us to deal with the sin within? Y'all, Jesus can forgive, sanctify, wash clean, and power in the Holy Spirit, but what good is that in theory if your life is still wrapped up in sin and anger and hatred because every time we're tempted, we don't have the discipline to say no to it? So this is exactly what we're going to turn a corner here. This, uh, this concept that I'm dealing with, all I'm doing today, y'all, is framing like why you need to be a person who actually does stuff with your life <laughs> in response to Christianity. Like you actually got to do stuff. Like you can't just like, you know, I believe it and out, out there, nowhere, la la land. That's nothing. Uh, if, it's, if it's not made itself into the way you actually live. Okay. That's all I'm literally doing. You guys get that? Okay. So Romans five through seven deals with this. Romans five. You ever read Romans? It's a remarkable book. I, ooh, so good. Romans 5, he's all like, dude, you guys are justified by faith alone. It's all faith. It's all Jesus. It's all faith alone. You guys, read it. Go, read it. And then Romans 6, but he's like, hey, but listen, just because it's all grace, like you still got to do things. You still got to die to your sin, 
right? It's yes, it's all Jesus, but can you continue in sin? By no means. You guys read it? Romans 5 and then Romans 6 and then Romans 7. He's like, okay, now here's our problem. Stay with me. He's saying, I know all that stuff. Paul is saying, I know all that stuff. I know it all in my mind. I know Jesus has forgiven me. I know it's completely and fully forgiven and I'm perfect and sanctified. I know all that stuff. He's saving my grace alone. But here's the problem. Man, I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want to do is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, here's the thing. It's no longer I who do it. Y'all, something is inside me. Sin, it dwells in my body, embodied, you see? But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You see, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. He's like, dude, I know all the right stuff. I know all the stuff as Christ has done. I've been taken out of the wilderness, but I find, in, I find inside me the wilderness. And it's the language, y'all, of sin dwelling in my members. What does he mean? What does he mean? Sin in his body. He's saying, my body is still acting as if Jesus hadn't done the work. Are we, are we communicating here? It's almost like he's saying, yes, Christ, fully forgiven, completely justified, amen. But that doesn't change the fact you got a little things called habits. You know those things? You got habits, bro, sister. You got a little thing called habits. And you know what habits are? Habits are like muscle memory, you know? And some of our habits got the stench of death on them still. And when, but, but a habit, a habit is like this. A habit is something that you've done so often, so many times, it's just autopilot, all right? Many of you, this is how we drive. Okay, stay with me, stay with me. This is how we drive our cars. It's auto, like you've been driving for like 20 years. You're on autopilot. It's why you can like, it takes zero effort to drive. Anyone with me? Like I'm like super distracted. I'm looking at houses. Like I'm singing when I drive. Some of you watch YouTube while you drive. Fess up. Who watches YouTube while you drive? Officer, arrest them. Oh, uh, <laughs> no, because driving's a habit and you know it. You've done it. So it's autopilot. It's autopilot. Okay. All right. Many of us living under sin is autopilot. It's just, it's just the natural rhythm of our life. We're just, it's as, as if it's ingrained and it's a muscle memory. It's going to happen every time, even when you don't want it to. This is what Paul is addressing. He's like, you got these little things called habits. Think about it this way. You got a brain and in your brain, let's imagine, I want you to imagine with me and in your brain is, is a field of grass, tall grass, like big, tall grass. That's everyone got it. Field of tall grass. This is your brain. This is your life. All right. The more that you think a thought, the more that you do an action, you know what you're doing in this field of tall grass, you're knocking the grass down and you're creating these pathways. You got it. You, every time you think a thought, every time she snubs you and you respond with offense, every time you respond in anger, you're creating a pathway in your brain, a pathway that it's easier to walk on when it comes and it's harder to get off when it comes. It's a habit. You guys understand what I'm talking about? Every time your spouse does this thing and you respond in this way, you're creating a pathway. It's a habit. Your mind has routines. And if every time someone snubs you, you always respond that way, you're creating these pathways in your brain. Okay. So we meet Jesus. Wonderful miracles happen. Life floods in. We have an emotional response. We come down at the end to get prayed for. And it's awesome. And yes, more of that, Lord. But here's the problem. 
You got 20 years of walking in bitterness towards your husband. What are you going to do with that? God will sometimes and can just change that in a moment, but not often. You got 10 years of binging Netflix for five hours every night. Dude, you got pathways. Some of us got pathways that lead to porn so much. It's so well-traveled. We're just always going to end back there. You, you got these little thing called habits. And let me be honest with you as we wrap it up here. Charismatics can be the worst about this. I love you. We can be the worst. We believe God has acted beautifully. He's, he's engaged us. We believe in the active power and presence of God. Sometimes that we forget that we still have to walk on our own two legs. Sometimes, y'all, really good theology, great theology can inadvertently create lazy, unintentional, emotionally immature Christians because they forget. They think, well, God's done it all. He's done it all for me. He'll do it all for me, and I have nothing to do. It's not true. You do have things to do. Repent and believe. See, they forget that they're still part of us, and this is where Lent gets really practical, and that's what we're going to wrap it up with today. Lent is going to remind us of the embodied, you see, in my body, practices of the church in a fallen world. It's gonna call us to some disciplines and practices that Jesus said, Jesus said his followers would make a habit in their life. I'm sure you might be able to think of some. To create new pathways, and this is a very important phrase, of dependencies, of dependency on Jesus in the wilderness. Got it? New pathways of dependency on Jesus in the wilderness. And today, I'm not even getting into practice because it's already 11.42. I've gone way too long. Except for this. This is what I'm calling you into and inviting you into. Over the next 40 days, Lent leads us to Easter, y'all. Resurrection Sunday, where we're going to party like no one's business. Um, if you call this church home, I'm asking you, I'm calling you to join me in fasting and prayer. Fasting and prayer for this church, for this community, for me, what I'm going to do, I'll tell you right now, I'm going to be fasting every Tuesday from sunrise to sunset. And instead of eating, I will be praying for you, whether you like it or not. <laughs> I'll be praying that God supernaturally intervenes in this community. I'll be praying for your marriage. I'll be praying for your children. I'll be praying that God breaks the back of pride in your heart. I'll be praying for the chains of sin on you, that they're broken in the name of Jesus. And I want to challenge you to join me. And you don't have to do it on Tuesdays. I don't care what you can fast. We're going to talk about fasting later. Okay. But fasting and prayer was a combination that Jesus seemed to think have a lot of power, has a lot of power. And I'm inviting you to fast with me and pray for this church, for the people sitting to your right and your left that maybe you don't even know their name, that we would become a community that is mobilized and empowered in the kingdom, that we start pushing back the kingdom of darkness with his kingdom in his power. Fasting and prayer, y'all. Let's see if 2 Chronicles 7.14 is true. Let's see if it's true. If my people who are called by, by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive, forgive their sin and heal their land. Y'all, there comes a point in your Christian life where you got to put your money where your mouth is. And if you've never participated in some of the Christian practices of fasting and prayer, solitude, Sabbath, submission, I'm calling you in this season to embody your faith. You understand what I'm saying? Make it active in your body. Your body has to, it has to we make it real in the world. God, in, it's incarnational faith. It's what Jesus did. You understand? Embodied faith. I'm calling you to it. The second one, so fast and pray with me if you should be so crazy. Second, 
I want to invite you to come Sunday nights at 6 o'clock and pray with a small group of people and me for this community that we are doing as a group. And it's been wonderful. And the point of that service is not to entertain you. It's not to minister to you. It's to minister to God. And I just want to invite you, if you are an alien to prayer, if prayer is something that you don't know how to get into, it's weird to you, just come, come and watch. Just come listen. Come see how we do it. Maybe it might work for you. Or if there's something going on in your life right now that you just need the power of God to intervene, come, get on your face before us and ask God to intervene. What do you have to lose? So two invitations I have before you today as we end. Join me in fasting and prayer. One day a week, maybe go without. You don't have to be a whole day. I'm going to do a whole day because I'm a super Christian. But you can, you can do, sorry. You can do, uh, you, do you like that one? Duck like that one. Um, you can do um, a meal. You can fast watching TV one night. You can, there's all sorts of different fasting. And I, invi- I invite you for the next 40 days to go without something and substitute that with praying before God. For me for this church, for God to move in this place. And it leads us up to Easter and it's very, very exciting. So we're gonna come to the table now.